From Muse by Clio and the Clio Awards, this is Tagline, the show about great ads and the people who make them. This week on Tagline. Bud Light presents Real Men of Genius. Real Men of Genius. The brief was like ridiculously simple, but also um, horrifically paralyzing. <laughs> there was no brief other than do funny radio. And they said, we have got the campaign for you. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Everybody on the other side of the glass was on the floor, absolutely cracking up. We just did stuff that, that I thought was funny. They're like, he's a star! We only really put out three jokes with a, a kicker at the end. And that's not a lot of jokes in, in 60 seconds. Everybody knew it was golden and everybody wanted to work on it. I mean, right away, it was like, oh my gosh, what is this thing? Have, you know, have we captured lightning in a bottle and how long can we keep it going? In 1999, Bud Light and its agency, DDB Chicago, premiered one of the great radio ad campaigns of all time, Real Men of Genius. Originally titled Real American Heroes, the campaign paid comic yet sincere homage to the world's most underappreciated guys, who'd never had a moment in the spotlight. Guys like Mr. Bowling Shoe Giver Outer, Mr. Giant Taco Salad Inventor, and Mr. 80 SPF Sunblock Wearer. In more than 200 spots over the course of a decade, Real Men of Genius would transcend advertising and become pure entertainment, eventually going beyond radio to include TV spots, compilation CDs, and even live events. On this episode of Tagline, we'll dig into the campaign's greatest hits with folks on the agency, client, and production sides, and with Pete Stacker and Dave Bickler, the voiceover artist and 80s rock singer whose amusing back and forth in the spots was a big part of their charm. I'm Tim Nudd with Muse by Clio, and thanks for joining me for the story of Real Men of Genius, Bud Light's self-deprecating comic masterpiece that became a pop culture sensation. Season two of Tagline is brought to you by GSTV. For those of you who may not be familiar, there's a good chance you watch GSTV every time you fuel up. GSTV is a national video network that's had incredible growth, now reaching 104 million viewers a month with a unique one-to-one -one moment of attention. Think about it, what campaign would you run with that moment? On Tagline, we're discussing some of the most memorable spots in history. Imagine how those campaigns, or your next one, could be creatively transformed in context on GSTV. To fuel your next creative campaign, visit gstv.com slash tagline. In 1999, Bud Light began testing a radio campaign in a couple of markets in Ohio that would soon blow up into one of the biggest national pop culture hits advertising has ever seen. Originally called Real American Heroes, the 60-second spots humorously sang the praises of the generally unsung heroes of guy culture in America, in the most bombastic way possible. Bud Light presents Real American Heroes. Real American Heroes. Today we salute you, Mr. Footlong Hot Dog Inventor. Mr. Footlong Hot when conventional wisdom said no one could make a hot dog longer than six inches, you dared to dream. Dared to dream. You knew the limitations of a regular size hot dog bun, and you ignored them. Can't stop me now. 
You made a 10-inch wiener, and people cheered. But you weren't satisfied. You said, wait, I think I can still give you two more inches. And so the footlong was born. So crack open an ice cold Bud Light, Mr. Hot Dog Hero, because you gave every single one of us our fondest wish, a bigger wiener. Bud Light Beer, Anheuser-Busch, St. Louis, Missouri. The campaign would be an instant hit, and within a year would help make Bud Light the best-selling beer in America, passing Budweiser. But for DDB Chicago, getting there hadn't been easy. Their previous radio campaign for the brand, voiced by Charlton Heston, had been hugely popular, and the agency struggled for months to find a worthy sequel. And when they did land on Real American Heroes, it was almost killed off before it even had a chance to air. The brief was like, ridiculously simple, but also horrifically paralyzing. (laughs) It was like, just make, you know, a great radio campaign that's going to be, you know, loved by everybody. Bob Winter was a copywriter at DDB Chicago. He was working in the McDonald's group at the time, but longed to have a shot at the Anheuser-Busch brands. And so one day, Bob gets his chance. They actually reached out to me because I think they were on, I don't know, like round 75 of pitching radio campaigns. And um, just been having a rough time with it. Mark Gross, then one of two creative directors on the brand at DDB, recalls the challenge of following up the Heston work and the moment they had a breakthrough. There was no brief other than do funny radio. Try to beat what we have. And so we said, okay. And at the time, we had a very large group at DDB. We probably had 10 teams working on this. No brief. We just said, it's Bud Light. Uh, Create a funny campaign. Go to work. And we sent the assignment out. The people probably had two weeks to work on it. And we're seeing teams in, in shifts and in walks Bob Winter, who was a writer, with a script where he made it seem like he was saluting a football player. And then it made a turn at the end and he was saluting the groundskeeper. So I kind of thought, wouldn't it be kind of fun to dramatize people who did everyday things for their jobs. You know, like there are people in the world who have these ridiculous jobs. Um, You know, what if we sort of heroicize them? I had written it about like the guy that cuts the grass at football stadiums, you know, but I had written it as if you were talking about a salute to a a player, you know? So it was like, he's at the 10, the five, he crosses the finish line. And now he has to turn around and cut a strip down the other side, 40 more times, you know? I remember leaving some stuff under their door and then kind of just casually walking by just to see if I could hear anything on the other side of the door. And they, they were, they were laughing. They were like laughing and talking. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I think they like them. And so we said, I, you know, myself and Bill were like, well, this is great. I don't think you need the misdirect. Why don't you just salute this groundskeeper guy? It's kind of funny. I think in the meeting I threw out, there are many of these jobs. And I said, like a bowling shoe guy who gives out bowling shoes. We all laughed. And Bob Winter then came back, might have been a week later, with three scripts. And those are the original Real Men of Genius scripts. The three scripts were Mr. Footlong Hot Dog Inventor, Mr. Driving Range Ball Picker Upper, and this one, based on Mark's idea, Mr. Bowling Shoe Giver Outer. Today we salute you, Mr. Bowling Shoe Giver Outer. Your tireless efforts keep our feet comfy and sanitized with mountain freshness. freshness. Instinctively, you match left shoe with right, carefully placing each pair in its own tiny shoe house. One wrong move 
And we're on the fast train to Blisterville. Is he a nine and a half or a ten? You know. Why? Because you're Mr. Bowling Shoe Giver Outer. So crack open an ice cold Bud Light, mister, and know it's no accident those shoes are red, white, and blue. No, we couldn't fall Bud Light Beer, Anheuser-Busch, St. Louis, Missouri. Bob's scripts were very promising, but it would be a long road to the finished spots. They needed a great voiceover artist, a bed of music that could work underneath, and a singer to do the callback parts, which they added to break up what were essentially just long monologues. Each of these steps would be a challenge. They began with the VO, auditioning loads of people in L.A., including actors like Jeffrey Tambor and Jack Palance. Here's a bit of Tambor's audition, which did not land him the gig. Bud Light presents Real American Heroes. Today we salute you, Mr. Bowling Shoe Giver-Outer. Your tireless efforts keep our feet comfy and sanitized with mountain freshness. At the same time, they struggled with the music. At first, they tried Bette Midler's Wind Beneath My Wings, which was dopey enough, for sure, and lyrically perfect, but felt clunky with the VO on top. Did you ever know that you're my hero? Bud Light presents Real American Heroes. Today, we salute you, Mr. Bowling Shoe Giver-Outer. Through your tireless efforts, you keep our feet comfy. Next, they tried instrumental tracks, including the theme from the movie Rudy. Finally, they decided they needed new music entirely, so they went to Scandal in Chicago, whose founder, Sandy Torano, wrote a 60-second track kicked off by a soon-to-be-famous drum riff, which turned out to be perfect, almost like the song version of a slow clap. Right around this time, they found their VO as well. A well-known Chicagoan whose amusingly impassioned delivery was just what the campaign needed. And so they brought me over and said, uh, can you do something with this? So I uh, stepped into the mic and they gave me the, the script and I listened to what they were looking for. And I did the first spot. And when I looked up, everybody on the other side of the glass was on the floor, absolutely cracking up. And I thought, oh, is this? They said, that's it, man. That's it. Pete Stacker had done years of morning radio in Chicago, was the announcer for the Oprah Winfrey show, and would later voice characters in the video game Halo. Pete loved Bob's scripts instantly, and to find the voice for the character, he drew inspiration from two other announcers he had great admiration for. One was uh, John Facenda. January 17th, Lambeau Field. The new centurions, the warriors few, you know. And uh, another guy named Norman Ross, who was a Chicago uh, voice guy. And, um, and he did the, the desiderata, go placidly in the night, though you are alone. And, uh, and I combined the two of them uh, right then and there. I didn't make any tests or any. I just right then and there said, let's combine these two. The idea was to be as straight as can be, but let the sarcasm kind of slide through. And that's what made it really funny. A few folks on the team felt that Pete did too much VO work already and they should find someone else. But Bill Cimino, the other CD on the account, along with Mark, figured that's what made him perfect. Oh my God, he'd be great because he's the most overused spokesperson. And it's like, what, what this thing really needs is sort of a shill 
kind of an endorsement. And, uh, you know, nobody could do that better <laughs> than, than Pete. Orchestrating everything behind the scenes was a sound engineer named Dave Gerbosi, who would be central to the campaign from the first demos through the final spots a decade later. Gerbosi recalls that first session with Pete Stagger very well. Good friend of mine, John Smith, engineered the track, and he copped the 80s power ballad sound perfectly, and that was the track we used uh, from then on. And we had Pete read along with the track, and there was a really good feeling in the room when that happened. It, it, it you know, it kind of fell into place right away. It took a little while for Pete to, you know, kind of find the character. He tried a few different things, but once he he locked in, everyone felt really good that day. I remember the final piece of the puzzle, the singer to do the callbacks, that came from Scandal Music as well. The DDB team told Sandy Toronto they wanted a parody of an '80s rock star, but Sandy said. Why not have the real thing instead? They got the call for this looking for an 80s rock singer guy. And Sandy went, well, I know one. <laughs> and they told him that was me, you know, formerly from Survivor. And I, the Tiger, and all that. And they said, you can get that guy. Dave Bickler had been the original lead singer of Survivor in its Eye of the Tiger days, back in the late 70s, early 80s. He had a self-deprecating sense of humor that fit right in. And he'd been singing in commercials for years, having been introduced to advertising through the bass player in his high school band whose dad happened to work at J. Walter Thompson. So I came in to do it, and we crafted my character that first session. Uh, I thought it was the craziest thing I'd ever heard, and I thought, <laughs> and uh, my, my voiceover partner, Pete Stacker, who was, so, who was so funny, made me laugh right off the bat. But, you know, they just started throwing stuff at me, and we just, I started singing things, uh, you know, that I thought, not being afraid to not take myself seriously, you know. And uh, so we just had some fun with it, trying to sound like a rock singer, screaming a lot, stuff that's just over the top. It's um, not to say that that's not in songs, you know, <laughs> all the time, but I don't know. We just we just did stuff that, that I thought was funny. And like, he's a star! You know, we're really hitting a really high note that makes no sense, you know, kind of really in the context of it, but, you know, it's kind of fun. Scandal also brought in backup singers as well. Marianne Newton, one of the producers at DDB, recalls it being quite the scene in the studios at Scandal on recording days. One singer that came in that I was totally enthralled with and impressed with was um, Lisa Fisher, who had sung with, you know, the Rolling Stones and um, just, I mean, in her own right, she won a Grammy. She was amazing. So it was really, it was really fun to uh, see all those rock and roll geniuses get together and uh, work on these spots. It was very fun. At this point, even as they finished up the launch spots, the idea still hadn't officially been greenlit by the client. The agency wasn't too worried. They were thrilled with how things were going and figured the client would be too. But unfortunately, they figured wrong. We had been running a campaign that had gotten, you know, kind of tired. It's time to move on. They would come in and present. And I it, just nothing hit it. Nothing hit it. I kept sending them back saying, nah, I don't like it. Don't like it. Andy Goler was VP of marketing for Bud Light from 1993 until 2002. And in fact, he's been back in that same role since 2017, after holding various other top positions throughout AB. I was traveling, and it was a Friday night, and I get a call before I boarded the plane, and it was from uh, the account team, and they said, we have got the campaign for you. And I'm like, yeah, okay. And when you land, there will be an envelope at the airport for you to listen to the cassette. And I remember this like it was yesterday because I was like so excited. I'm thinking, oh, man, I remember landing and I got this envelope and I got in the car 
And I was so excited. And so I started driving and I opened the envelope, pulled out this cassette. Uh, it was like, oh, oh, and I popped it in my my uh, radio player at the time. And I hated it. I listened to it. I'm like, oh, geez. You know, all of a sudden it's this guy, real American. And yeah, I'm listening to it and feeling like, oh, wow, this feels feels a bit silly. It feels, I don't, I don't know, it feels silly. And I got so mad. I'm like, oh, they they told me they had an amazing campaign. Oh. I actually threw the cassette out the window. JT Maple, DDB's account lead on Bud Light at the time, not surprisingly, also remembers this like it was yesterday. I remember exactly where I was when he called me to tell me I was standing outside the Capitol Grill. And I remember it was so loud in there, I couldn't hear. And so I stepped outside you know, in anticipation of a great call. And it was like, no, I threw it out the window. I hate it. The campaign skidding along Highway 40 in St. Louis certainly was not part of the plan. But thankfully, it turned out the agency had some wiggle room. It was like a punch in the gut. But I I knew that Andy, you know, I mean, he's always sort of out on a limb and very like emotional and like, uh, you know, hot about stuff sometimes, but that sometimes he could be talked off the ledge. And I told him, I said, you know, these have to get into groups. I said, you're missing the power. I said, you've trusted us and you know who is behind this. And it was, you know, Mark and Bill Cimino and Johnny Masodi and Bob Winter. But I said, these guys are not wrong. I said, you know that they're not. You have to put this into into testing. I said, because if you don't, we will. And I'm like, okay, if you guys think this is big, let's go ahead. I think I actually went to like a couple of markets in Ohio, like Cleveland or Cincinnati, and we just started, you know, running it and looking for, you know, feedback from consumers. And then, you know, it it started to, to get a buzz. Unaided, this campaign would pop up and unaided is so important, right? When you start talking to, all right, tell, tell me about some ads that you've heard in the last couple of weeks. And all of a sudden someone, you know, Someone says, oh, that Bud Light uh, real real American hero thing. And oh, yeah, I've heard that. That's that's hysterical. And that's powerful as hell, because, you know, as you know, consumers are inundated with with advertising. So that was how it all kind of started. It started bubbling. Crisis averted. AB embraced the work, vastly expanded the media buy. And in just a few months, all of America, it seemed, was laughing along with these absurd character studies and their amusing one-liners. Today we salute you, Mr. Putt-Putt Golf Course Designer. Mr. Putt-Putt Golf Course Designer. Through the magic of AstroTurf and animatronics, you've taken the time-honored game of golf and made it fun again. Keep on stroking. They said a three-foot putt wasn't a challenge, so you added windmills. While lesser men wasted time with fairways and sand traps, you had visions of fiberglass volcanoes and giant clown heads. Freak me so crack open an ice cold Bud Light, Mr. Putt-Putt Golf Course Designer, because you and I know that a round of golf should always, always include Indian teepees. Mr. Putt-Putt Golf Course Designer. Bud Light Beer, Anheuser-Busch, St. Louis, Missouri. The campaign was a hit right out of the gate. Within a year, it would become even more famous than the Heston work was, with everyone from morning DJs to late-night talk show hosts having fun with it. Some of the humor can feel a bit dated today. A lot of it is quite a bit raunchier than what's on the radio now, but the Target loved it. It was well-liked in the industry, too, winning a slew of trophies at the 2000 Clio Awards and later picking up three straight Grand Clios in radio, 
from 02 to 04. At DDB, it became a treasured creative showcase, and in round two, other writers beyond the core team of Bob, Mark, Bill, and John got their chance to work on it. One of them was Pat Burke, who would write for the campaign for its duration. As soon as Bob read those first three scripts, everybody in the room literally audibly was like, well, that's it. You know, like, let's not bother. It was so funny and so good right at the beginning. Everybody knew it was golden and everybody wanted to work on it. Not because they wanted a piece of it, it, but because it was so fun. Like the writing was so fun and the structure was already there. So it was just joke writing uh, without a lot of pressure of a brief <laughs> you know, or anything like that. The typical structure was there'd be three jokes in the middle and then that sign off at the end. And I remember fighting for summer. I'm like, no, I timed it. We could fit four in there. <laughs> we could fit four jokes in. I promise. John, I timed it. And he'd be like, no, no, no. And he was right. Like it, the, the cadence of it was so important. The spots Pat wrote for round two included Mr. Putt-Putt golf course designer and Mr. Hawaiian shirt pattern designer which closes on a line that still makes him chuckle. You know, shirts may not be made in Hawaii, but Taiwan is an island too. And sometimes that salute at the end was the hardest joke to write because it had to be a cheers moment, you know? But sometimes you'd hit one and it would be like the perfect ending to the spot, you know? That line always got a laugh. Today we salute you, Mr. Hawaiian Shirt Pattern Designer. Mr. Hawaiian Shirt Pattern Designer. You provide us with colorful loungewear capable of hiding any stain we can dish out. Who else could create flowered shirts that are still so unmistakably masculine? A single shirt that matches every pair of pants we own and really sets off a white belt. Sure, women say they hate them, but inside, they're all swooning for the big kahuna. So crack open an ice cold Bud Light, Mr. Hawaiian Shirt Pattern Designer. Your shirts may not be made in Hawaii, but Taiwan is an island too. Mr. Hawaiian Shirt Designer. Bud Light Beer at Isaac St. Louis, Missouri. Kitty Schultz also wrote for the campaign from start to finish. One of her spots holds the distinction of being the first one played for the Bud Light wholesalers when Andy Goler rather nervously introduced the campaign to them for the very first time. You're in a room with 5,000 people, but I remember uh, playing the spot. It was uh, outside the stadium peanut cellar, and the place went absolutely berserk. I mean, the wholesalers were on the floor laughing and rolling. I ended up playing like three more. They were, I'm like, oh my God, play the next one. You know, I have never been a particular sports fan, but. When you live in downtown Chicago, I mean, I'm a mile from Wrigley and worked in advertising in the 90s when tickets and events and parties and stuff were pretty free flowing. And I worked on Gatorade, so went to a lot of games and, you know, just in thinking about different topics and who was somebody that maybe you never really noticed, but that had kind of a quirky job. And it just seemed like a really... A natural fit. Today we salute you, Mr. Outside the Stadium Peanut Seller. Mr. Outside the Stadium Peanut Seller. You stand like a sentry outside the grounds of our national pastime, offering us your salty nuts. Nice and crunchy. Half price on the outside, all the taste. That's your pitch. Nuts for There's nothing like spending a summer day on a hard bleacher seat, crunching your nuts. Unless maybe it's sitting behind home plate, spreading mustard on your wiener. 
So crack open an ice cold Bud Light, Mr. Outside the Stadium Peanut Seller, because thanks to you, a bag of peanuts costs just peanuts. Mr. Outside the Stadium Peanut Seller. Bud Light Beer, Anheuser-Busch, St. Louis, Missouri. Kitty was unique among the writers simply by virtue of being a woman. This was a campaign that was written for men and mostly by men for its entire run. This made a certain sense at the time, who better at guy humor than guys, though Kitty was certainly as great as anyone at mining insights that led to fun spots. I mean, I kind of enjoyed the quirk of being the only woman, but other women could have done it too. I mean, if you go to that overall advertising thing of if you're paying attention, you can write to anybody. To me, what I remember being very difficult was selling it because it was a group full of super talented people that were all working on things all the time. I mean, right away, it was like, oh my gosh, what is this thing? Have, you know, have we captured lightning in a bottle and how long can we keep it going? It seemed like it could go on forever. The first year and a half of the campaign were unlike almost anything Bud Light had ever done in terms of awareness and engagement. But then, on September 11th, 2001, everything changed. Next to the tragedy of the attacks that day, the fate of an ad campaign was obviously irrelevant. At the same time, Andy Goler and the AB team had a problem. What to do with their comic take on American heroes, which overnight had become completely out of step with culture. We made a very tough decision. I shouldn't say tough. It was, it was the right thing to do by far. But man, the campaign had such a buzz going. But because of the way we as a company were honoring heroes, we felt having a parody you know, on real American heroes with the humor-driven context of the spots wasn't culturally the right thing to do. So we actually pulled the campaign off the air. But, you know, like great creatives do, they came back very quickly and said, what if we changed it to real men of genius? I think it was actually Bill Chimino that was like, no, what if we change the name, you know, and like find another name that's still, still ridiculous and fun. And I do remember just being horrified at the prospect of losing that campaign. And, you know, the, the, the campaign was gonna die. And so I, I, I remember it was like John, myself and Mark, and we were like scrambling, but yeah, it, it was good. And in some ways, I think the name served the campaign a little better just in, a, in terms of how the idea worked, I guess. Real American heroes, we built such equity in that phrase. It took me a little while to oh, say, okay, let's go with real man of genius. But you know, once we started up with it again, uh, we didn't really miss a beat. Bud Light presents Real Men of Genius. Real Men of Genius. Today we salute you, Mr. Giant Taco Salad Inventor. Mr. Giant Taco Salad Inventor. A culinary creation that baffles the human mind. A 12,000 calorie salad. Acaromba. Ground beef. Refried beans, guacamole, cheese, sour cream, and if there's any room left, a few shreds of lettuce. I don't see no lettuce. Some may ask, is your taco salad healthy? Of course it is. It's a salad, isn't it? You can eat that deep fried crunchy bowl. So crack open a nice cold bud-like conquistador of the calorie. You put the feast in fiesta. Mr. Giant Taco Salad in bed. Bud Light Beer, Anheuser-Busch, St. Louis, Missouri. Over the next seven years, the campaign would become ever more entrenched in American culture. 
and at DDB, of course, it became a prized account to work on. After the break, we'll speak to other writers who made their mark on the work with classic spots later on, we'll explore how the campaign went well beyond radio, and we'll look at how the whole thing wrapped up, somewhat abruptly as it turned out, after a decade on the air. Once again, thanks to our sponsor of today's episode, GSTV. GSTV recently launched Amplify, a retail media network that helps CPG marketers reach consumers primed to spend in the last mile of the consumer journey. With two in three GSTV viewers shopping on the day they fuel up, Amplify is a solution for CPG marketers to ensure your campaigns are being seen and influencing your consumer's next action. To learn more, visit gstv.com amplify. Advertising evolves with the times, of course, but in some ways, the beauty of Real Men of Genius is that it didn't evolve at all. For its entire run, there was a very specific framework the writers had to follow. It started with Bud Light Presents, then the introduction of the character, three jokes and three callbacks, comedy's old rule of threes, then a toast to crack open a nice cold Bud Light, one last joke and a quick branded outro. Simple, but as Mark Gross recalls, not always easy. The challenging part was sometimes you'd come up with the title and it, it would be tough to write to. Other times the words would just flow. That was the joy in writing. And it was a little bit like stand-up comedy, I always tell people, because we just got to sit down and think about the things that we thought were so silly, like the guy you always see on the beach, you know, with the metal detector. Or uh, one of my favorites that Bill and I wrote was, you know, the taco salad inventor. I always laughed that we all thought we were eating healthy salads and the taco salad probably has 10,000 calories in it with the sour cream, the guacamole and the cheese. The rigid structure, though, was balanced out by something completely unrestrained, which became the campaign's superpower, the always expanding list of people and jobs they could celebrate, which kept the work fresh through hundreds of executions. And honestly, it was like, I don't know, I don't know how many more I can come up with. Like, How many more ridiculous jobs are there to salute in the world, right? But then, you know, every year we came up with more and every year I thought like, this has got to be it. You know, this is, this is, this is it. And then it just started to grow and grow. The best jokes were the ones with the funniest insights into the characters. And that's what was great about this campaign as well. Everything was an insight. Each line, its own little nugget of truth with very little filler. Jeb Quaid, a writer who joined the campaign later, recalls how fun this was for the creatives. The whole thing was based around finding uh, like a, a human truth about things that and people whereas a lot of times in other tv spots that that's actually the goal but you you're trying to work in so many other things uh, real men of genius just sort of like put the focus on that which i thought was cool jeb worked with art director aaron pendleton on a bunch of spots in the mid-2000s including mr t-shirt launcher inventor and one of the true classics mr 80 spf sunblock wearer that was one of the ones where i think they had given us a theme of just summer and so we started thinking about uh just funny truths about going to the beach. And I was thinking about my own family, how they're, everyone's so incredibly pale. And like, you know, my dad, like used to think 30 SPF was like way too low, you know, like we got to go more. And and at some point, I don't even think anything over 50, I think it's just like the same thing. Like, I don't think it's doing anything more. But, so I was like, let's just push it to 80. Today we salute you, Mr. 80 SPF sunblock wearer. Mr. 80 SPF sunblock wearer. There are 24 hours in a day. You're wearing 80-hour protection. If the sun fails to go down, you'll be ready. Don't forget the moonlight. Your coconut-scented force field blocks out all the sun's rays. And any stray rays from another sun 
in another galaxy. Your star. 30 SPF, please. You might as well be wearing cooking oil. Something smells delicious. So crack open an ice cold Bud Light, Mr. 80 SPF sunblock wearer. In fact, feel free to crack one open at high noon in the middle of the Sahara Desert. Mr. 80 SPF sunblock wearer. Bud Light beer, Anheuser-Busch, St. Louis, Missouri. Another guiding principle of the campaign, from the very first scripts, was that they were supposed to be celebrating these characters, not making fun of them. They definitely walked the line on this, though. Spots like Tiny Thong Bikini Wearer, Really Bad Toupee Wearer, Way Too Much Cologne Wearer, and Really, Really, Really Bad Dancer certainly reveled in mocking their subjects. Yet these ads were as popular as the rest, maybe more so. Cologne Wearer and Really Bad Dancer were among three spots that earned the 2004 Grand Clio in radio. And as for Really Bad Toupee Wearer, JT Maple recalls the client being a little nervous about that one, but approving it anyway. And um, the brewery goes, well, yeah, we can't make that one because people are going to be offended. And, and the guys are like, no, uh, we think that anybody that wears a toupee is, thinks theirs is pretty good, so they're not going to be offended. <laughs> it was like, no, go ahead and make it. One spot in 2005 that was cleared for radio but later pulled made headlines for angering Airtran, the discount airline, with jokes they found less than amusing. Today we salute you, Mr. Discount Airline Pilot Guy. Mr. Discount Airline Pilot Guy. Your minimal experience flying a plane will never land you at a reputable airline. Luckily, you don't work for one. Look at me, I'm flying. Sure, we're concerned for our lives. Just not as concerned as saving nine bucks on a round trip to Fort Myers. The most direct route to Houston through Fort Lauderdale, with layovers in Detroit, Vancouver, and Kalamazoo. I can't feel my legs. So crack open an ice cold Bud Light, oh skipper of the skies. You put the fly in fly-by-night operation. Mr. Discount and I'm pilot guy. Bud Light beer, Anheuser-Busch, St. Louis, Missouri. The spot was written by Chuck Ratchford. Chuck would go on to play a major role on the campaign as creative director with Chris Rowe in its later years. But Discount Airline Pilot Guy was his very first genius spot to air and could easily have been his last. AirTran heard it. They were serving Budweiser on their plane uh, at the time. They took it off in protest from that spot. You actually published an article in, in uh, Adweek about that. So imagine me, of like I'm a young writer in the group, and then my first spot goes out. It's, it's the pinnacle of my career really at that time. And uh, then we get a call from the brewery and says, this <laughs> is... <laughs> Who wrote this? It was very, it was very uh, concerning at the time. Saluting the unsung heroes was a really great thing that the campaign did at its best. It was, you know, Mr. Bowling Shoe Giver Outer was really talking about somebody who was never given a pat on the back before. At its worst, you know, we always tried to watch this, but there were times when we'd be writing these spots when it would start to feel like we're just teasing someone or ragging on them too much. And you had to remember that there's someone behind it actually doing this job. Even Mr. Discount Airline Pilot Guy, ultimately, there's still a guy who's doing that. And so sometimes uh, that's part of the like looking back, you're like, ah, I don't know, were we too hard at different points on some of those people? But I think saluting the underdog is always a great strategy. You know, it never, never goes out of style. Chris Rowe was another central figure on the campaign, first as a writer, then as creative director with Chuck. Chris's spots included Mr. Cargo Pants Designer and Mr. Electric Carving Knife Inventor. 
He says the best scripts felt very visual, which really helped them stand out in radio. Radio is hard because it's theater of the mind, right? You introduce the, this person or this object right away and you set that, that image in the listener's mind. And I think the smile comes almost immediately. And it's hard to do. It's just, it's just hard to paint a picture, a word picture for people sometimes. So, you know, my process would just kind of be like, literally just as I would, you know, you know, walk to work or just throughout the day, like look at stuff and try to keep in mind to like, keep my eyes open for, for things that like maybe would inherently have something funny to them, but weren't just funny as is like, there's kind of nothing funny about a water bottle, but like, Oh, cargo shorts. Somebody came up with that idea. Today we salute you, Mr. Cargo Pants Designer. Mr. Cargo Pants Designer. You finally gave us what we wanted, the military look, without all that bothersome drilling, marching, and shooting. Fashion victory. Is that a banana in your pocket? Yes. And an orange. And a pocket comb. And an extra set of keys. And my sunglasses. Totally prepared now. How many times have you been in a restaurant and thought, man, I wish I'd brought my own jar of mayonnaise. Now you can. So crack open a nice cold Bud Light, oh Prince of the Pockets. Some may fill your shoes, but no one can fill your pants. Mr. Cargo Pants Design. Bud Light Beer, Anheuser-Busch, St. Louis, Missouri. The script writing, though, was just the beginning. As Mark recalls, everything could change, and usually did, in the studio where it didn't pay to be precious about your words. And a lot of times, you know, it was, it was three or four of us sitting there in the studio, like, ah, we like that line, try this. Would it be funnier if you said this? Okay, try this line. So really it was just a team of, of funny writers getting together. Uh, I imagine no different than the SNL team when they're writing skits. We just workshopped it over and over. You know, I want to give credit to Dave Grabosi, who was the sound engineer, and we really trusted his comedic taste. You know, he's a very dry guy and um, we trusted him. And in addition to Pete. Gerbosi recalls a certain restraint in the writing being critical as well. We only really put out three jokes with a a kicker at the end. And that's not a lot of jokes in in 60 seconds. It was part of what was, I think, pleasurable to listen to because it was much slower paced than a lot of radio comedy. It really took its time. The track is kind of at a relaxed tempo. So it's something that I always kept trying to make sure we maintained throughout the, the entire run of the campaign was that it didn't get too wordy. One of the first spots that Bob wrote was uh, Mr. Foam Finger Maker. And there was a joke in there at the end. It was, um, they're enormous. Yes. Yet one size fits all. It was a great joke, but it's nine words. And we would get scripts later on that, you know, were just way too verbose. And I, I would, as strongly as I could, would suggest, let's, let's cut. Let's, let's get to the pith of this. Let's get it as tight as possible, because that lets Pete be more of that character. The more words he had to say, the, the more the character went away. And then you had Pete Stacker and Dave Bickler, both of whom were encouraged to go off script and offer their ideas too. And a lot of my ad-libbing, it would come in the form of, hey, wouldn't this word work better? Or wouldn't this line be better if we did that? And sometimes they'd say no. And sometimes they'd say, no, that's great. Yeah, let's, let's run with that. And oftentimes uh, uh, some of the uh, younger or newer writers came in with too many words. And uh, so was, sometimes it got pretty punishing in the sessions uh, for some of the writers because it's unfortunate. No writers want to let their words go. <laughs> they want to keep all of them. And, but sometimes they just don't work. 
I'd done many commercials by that time, you know, a couple hundred commercials by that time or more. That's unusual. That's not how it goes, right? You, there's a script and it's that's etched in stone. You, you sing that script and, you know, God help you if you deviate from that and have to go to the enter to the agency and the, and the, and the client. So um, we, you, we just made up stuff. And then if somebody was laughing, then we, and then I do a whole bunch of different ones. They take it back to the you know, editing thing and they, they, you know, play around with it and, you know, put them together. Everyone has their favorite spots, of course. Pete has a bunch, including one that didn't go over too well with the fire department. Today, we salute you, Mr. Gasoline Barbecue Starter Guy. Never mind the charcoal chimney and the easy lighting briquettes. You know the only way to start a real barbecue is with a gallon of 93 octane and a book of matches. The fire department said, we'd rather you not run that. Some of the earlier ones I thought were, um, were, were gems. Today we salute you, Mr. Silent Killer Gas Passer. Last night you had the enchilada combo platter. This morning the three cheese omelet with broccoli. This afternoon you're a ticking time bomb. And... Uh, Today, we salute Mr. Tuxedo Shop Tux Redder. When the evening calls for five groomsmen in identical Robin's egg blue double-breasted, you are there. Last night, little Jason Weinstein had the slow dance of his life in the same exact pants I'm now wearing. Which is, those are funny lines. And, and it's, uh, uh, it's funny because it's, it's a little saucy but it allows the target to put the joke together. And when you, you get the chance to put the joke together, it's even funnier. And um, it took me about 25 or 30 takes to get through giant pocket knife inventor. I, I couldn't, I couldn't do it today. We salute you, Mr. Giant pocket knife inventor, because of you, we will never be lost in the middle of a dense forest without a little plastic toothpick again. What's that bulge in my pocket? It's my knife and my tweezers, and my scissors, and my spoon, and my bottle opener, and my fish scaler, Take it to the mess. and my leather awl, and my corkscrew, and my nail file, and my paring knife, and my hasp. What's a hasp? So crack open an ice cold Bud Light, Mr. Giant Pocket Knife Inventor, because you make our pockets bulge humongously with pride. Mr. Giant Pocket Knife Inventor. Bud Light Beer at Isaac Bush, St. Louis, Missouri. It took about 20, 25 times to get through it because I'd get down around Spoon and just couldn't hold it anymore because it was just absolutely silly. But silly works. Silly is fun. And people people enjoy it. And you're not really attacking people. Uh, Mr. Portable Toilet Cleaner Outer, you're in the number one business in the world. Unfortunately, you're also in the number two business, which is and that's guy humor, but uh, the ladies are laughing at it, too, because they know a guy. Pete and Dave got so popular, in fact, that the brand eventually asked them to go out on the road together to perform at sporting events around the country. This was a particular treat as they'd gotten to be friends, but actually hadn't met in person, having recorded separately for the first five years of the campaign. We rolled out live in front of uh, 11,000 brewers at their convention and blew the place up. And it went so well that they came to us and said, would you guys like to go on short tours for us? And I said, sure. So they wanted to figure out who would write this stuff on the tours. And uh, they were, Samino and the rest of the guys were nice enough to uh, say that I was a really good writer uh, or sort of a good writer. 
I would like to say they said, really, you know, but so I said, sure, I'll, I'll write some. And I, I wrote some and they really liked what I did. And pretty soon they didn't even start looking over my shoulder to find out whether it was good or not, or whether it was correct or not. They just trusted me. And uh, I wrote hundreds of them. We did NFL, we did major league baseball, we did hockey, you name it, we did it. In fact, I mean, one of the big ones was uh, the Riverbend Rock Festival in Chattanooga. And that was, uh, uh, that's a hundred thousand people. And, and we blew that place up. That was fun. We were doing a radio station in Cincinnati, I think. And they said, why don't you go to the baseball game here? You guys could go to the baseball game and do it. So we, you know, because they always have a presence there. So we went to the baseball game. They said, we do one on the field. Why don't you do one on the field? So we, we put together a spot ourselves for the, for the people there, for the fans and the team. And we went on the field and did that. And from then, all through that period after that, that was like in 2005, we were going out to every Major League Baseball game, NFL games, uh, made, uh, you know, NBA games, hockey games. We, we would go to all these sporting events and do do custom bits. And we go to all the radio stations and all that stuff. And I got to sing the national anthem, you know, for 70,000 people. That's fun, you know. We went to uh, uh, Wrigley Field, throughout the first pitch. Pathetic. But the people enjoyed the stuff so much that players came up to me. I remember uh, a Dempster. He came running up to me on the field. He says, man, I got them all. I said, no, you don't. And he said, yeah, no, I got everyone on my, my laptop right over here. I said, no, you don't. I don't, you don't. Can I get all of them? Maybe. <laughs> and so I ended up get, gifting him a, a couple of sets, but people liked collecting them. Probably one of the best ones for the stadium was for the Houston Astros. We went and did them, I think, four times. The line of all was, so crack open an ice cold Bud Light and toast the best thing about Houston. It ain't Dallas. And the place went up, for, up in flames. <laughs> People really liked it. So The campaign was extended in other ways, too. They did TV versions of some of the classic spots, directed by A-listers like Tom Schiller, Tom Kuntz, and No Murrow. These actually aired in the UK first, as Budweiser ads, weirdly enough. They also customized the radio for regional markets, including one spot Kitty Schultz recalls being probably her favorite from the whole campaign. When they needed some spots for Texas, I'm from Texas, and so I got to write some, and I did one that was Mr. Way Too Proud of Texas Guy, and basically just modeled it on my father, and... When it was all done, I sent it to him. I said, hey, what do you think about this? And he's like, oh, my gosh, that's so funny. And I said, well, it's about you. And he was like, what? That one's going to always have a soft place in my heart. Today we salute you, Mr. Way Too Proud of Texas Guy. Mr. Way Too Proud of Texas Guy. Men from lesser states may know their state's capital, but you, you know your state's bird, tree, and even reptile. Love that horny toad. You display your pride with your Lone Star tattoo, native Texan bumper sticker, and contempt for any state that doesn't start with Tex and end with is. That spells Texas. Sure, there are 49 other states in the union, but they're smaller, wussier, and the people talk funny. Yankee wussies. So crack open an ice cold Bud Light, oh lover of the Lone Star State, because all that flag waving must have made you mighty thirsty. Mr. Way too proud of Texas. Bud Light beer at St. Louis, Missouri. Finally, the campaign was also a useful tool internally at AB. 
they made scores of tribute spots for execs retiring from the company, and for the wholesalers and distributors as well. This was quite the going-away present, a personalized memento from one of the most iconic radio campaigns in history. You learn the ins and outs of the supply business at the Harvard of the Midwest, Southeast Missouri State. With a C-plus average, you will no longer have a semi full of beer under your command. But you will have a Cadillac full of blue hairs under the speed limit. Turn off that blinker. So crack open a nice cold Bud Light, oh Lord of Logistics. You put demand in supply and demand. Mr. Fancy Pants Beer Supply Guy. In the end, Real Men of Genius aired on the radio for more than nine years, an eternity by today's standards. But as so often happens, it was a change at the client that led to the demise of the campaign at the end of 2008. Its acquisition in November of that year by the Belgian-Brazilian brewer InBev for $52 billion. The buyout led to all sorts of changes, of course, creatively and otherwise, including the exit of Bob Lackey, the company's longtime advertising leader, right after the 2009 Super Bowl. New clients came in, very much wanting to turn the page, and DDB never produced another Real Men of Genius spot after that. But they did go out on a high. Just as it had in 2000, the campaign won gold at the Clios in 2009, for four spots produced the previous year aimed at sports fans. Mr. Football End Zone Painter, Mr. Rain Delay Tarp Roller Outer, Mr. Football First Down Marker Guy, and a spot that would really test Dave Bickler's speed singing skills, Mr. Golf Tournament Quiet Sign Holder Upper. Today we salute you, Mr. Golf Tournament Quiet Sign Holder Upper. Mr. Golf Tournament Quiet Sign Holder Upper. Boldly you patrol the line between order and anarchy, armed with only your wits, your resolve, and your tiny cardboard sign stapled to a stick. Actually, I glued it on. You protect professional golfers from what they fear most. Idle chit-chat 200 yards away. Stop breathing so loud now. Because you know there's one thing this spectator sport could really do without. Spectators. Get them out. So crack open a nice cold Bud Light, oh Sultan of the Shush. We'll keep singing your praises as long as you keep telling us to shut up. Mr. Golfton, my quiet sign on the road. Bud Light Beer, Anheuser-Busch, St. Louis, Missouri. In the years since it was retired, the campaign has been dusted off a few times. There was the short-lived Internet Heroes of Genius in 2019, then Stay-at-Home Humans of Genius during COVID. Dave Bickler popped up in Bud Light's 2021 Super Bowl ad, along with many of the brand's other advertising legends, and he and Stacker reunited that same year for a spot congratulating Tampa Bay on their Super Bowl win. But of course, nothing can match the campaign's glory days. When all the stars aligned, and they made a decade's worth of work where the quality never wavered. Everyone who worked on it remembers it fondly. For writers like Pat Burke and Chuck Ratchford, it really was a dream job and an experience that was hard to replicate later on. It was kind of the golden age. I mean, like, it's a, so, such a cliche way of saying it, but like, ever since I left that job and since, the, you know, we GDB parted ways with Anheuser-Busch, but like, it's like the dragon you've been chasing like that. I just want that kind of vibe. It was fun to go to work every day because everybody was just laughing and trying to make others work better. They were easy to like. Everybody would always say 98% of advertising is bad. And on the radio, I think that number is probably 99.5. So they were a real joy. And plus that, that intro that Sandy wrote from Scandal Music, you know, with those drums, the beat of those drums at the beginning, it just felt like something good was about to happen. 
I think the other lesson is, is overwriting, you know, of like of doing more over delivering what you sold to ensure that it remains up to a standard. I always had said at the, at, at the time, and even today, you know, Will Ferrell can sell a script for $40 million, but he's still riffing at the moment and they're writing something that doesn't turn out like the script they sold. And if he is the funniest person in the world and he's doing that, we, we should be doing the same. Dave Gerbosi and Pete Stacker both say they've rarely had as much fun in the studio as they did back then. A lot of what made Genius great was the fact that the creatives had a lot of time to explore creatively what it could be. I mean, the band track is, is spectacular. It's well played. It's beautifully recorded. Bickler's a great singer. The scripts are really well written. Pete's an incredible voiceover. It, it was a, every element of this campaign was excellent to begin with. And, you know, my job was kind of trying to take these really, really good things and just make them a little better. It's rare. It was a real luxury. These were 60 second commercials. And we said the words Bud Light twice in the spot. And we had a two second mandatory brewery tag at the end. So out of 60 seconds, well over 50 seconds of it was nothing but pure creative entertainment, which is uh, a rare ratio. But it's a ratio that is common, I think, to a lot of great advertising. You know, you think of uh, most interesting man in the world, and that's again, we don't they don't talk about the beer much. They just mention it at the end. I think that's a great formula. If it, if if the creative is strong enough, that's a really great formula. But when radio is done well, and uh, you really pay attention to it and work on it, it can be wholly entertaining, hugely so. Folks actually turned, told everybody to shut up in the car. Because they could hear the drums coming, you know, in the background and they wanted to hear the spot. And I heard hundreds of people tell me that they almost drove off the road and and drive off the road funny. When we were introduced in in events, the applause and the the warmth was just genuine. People went went crazy and thought you're they they should have done more t-shirts. I don't think they did enough t-shirts, but but then you can't complain because we sold albums. For the creative directors, Bill Cimino and Mark Gross, it was also an incredible ride, leading this work that got so popular and just made people smile. When life gets too serious, it's not too fun. And I think th- those those were little moments, you know, on your drive home or whatever, where I'd like to think that some of those ads were, were better than the programming that those ads supported. It's not easy to have those major, major hits. And so um, we're always striving to do that. But uh, sometimes it's just the right combination of things. We made the right decisions along the way. Um, and sometimes great advertising is all about decision making and taste. You know, what is your taste level? What, is your, what are the smart decisions being made? On the client side, Andy Goler admits throwing the campaign out the car window at first was probably a bit rash, considering the wonders it did for the brand in the end. Tim, I would tell you, that every marketeer, every marketeer in the country would die for that. That is nirvana from a marketing standpoint to have to have your advertising message permeate and take a life of its own on and have people start saying things like, hey, just do it. Or yeah, or let's think differently, you know, or dilly dilly. It's nirvana. You have an affinity. For, for your brand. And that's the most powerful thing. That's what we obtained. It's pretty much a testament to, to, uh, to, I think, the power of a really effective relationship between a brand team and a creative team. As for Bob Winter, 
The whole thing was career-defining and immensely fulfilling, coming up with this idea that led to so much joy at the agency and out in the world. You really rarely get that, you know, in your career, like where you get to see something where you're like, this is a thing I like. Oh, this is a thing they like. Oh, this is a thing a lot of people like, you know, is so rare and, and wonderful. And, you know, I think the, the good and bad thing about doing that is now that's all you want. <laughs> um, and just seeing the effect of a, of a, a positive idea on culture, but even on your internal culture, it's like, oh, people are walking down the halls with their shoulders back. You go to the client and the clients are like, I'm the guy I did that, you know, like, and people are like, how'd you do it? I want to do that. You know, like it creates this momentum. That's a momentum of positivity. That is, uh, it's just great at the time. Like everything was about TV and Super Bowl commercials. It was sort of like eh, you know, radio. I don't know. Like, but you could do something that changes your life. <laughs> you know, like you could write something that becomes like a, cultural magnet and like you know people talk about for years like it's such a great reminder to that anything is an opportunity to me one of the most satisfying things about it is that it's become something that like lots of people have gotten to play with over the years which is incredible right it's my favorite project i've ever worked on by far for for all those reasons honestly it didn't even really sell the beer that hard it was just like brought to you by bud light you know and like what a what a lovely gift to people right You've been listening to Tagline, the show about great ads and the people who make them. Thanks to my guests this week, Bob Winter, Mark Gross, Bill Cimino, Dave Gerbosi, Pete Stacker, Dave Bickler, Marianne Newton, Andy Goler, JT Maple, Pat Burke, Kitty Schultz, Jeb Quaid, Chuck Ratchford, and Chris Rowe. Tagline is a production of Muse by Clio, the content division of the Clio Awards. This week's episode was produced by Carly Angeloni, edited by Lane McGibbony. Our theme music is by Brian Englishman. Special thanks to the creative agency Gut for helping us promote the show. And a big thank you as well to our sponsor, GSTV. For more about Tagline and to watch the ads we talk about on every episode, visit taglinepodcast.com. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to listen. I'm Tim Nudd. Thanks for joining me. And we'll be back soon with another new episode of Tagline. This episode of Tagline was brought to you by GSTV. Every day, millions of Americans get in their vehicles and go. Fueling drives commutes, commerce, and connection. And that's where GSTV has the undivided attention of one in three adults every month. GSTV's national video network owns a unique moment for innovative storytelling when consumers are engaged, taking action today, and influenced for tomorrow. Fuel your next creative campaign with GSTV. To get started, visit gstv.com tagline.